In a new paper from Ambassador Dennis Ross, he argues that Iran, its nuclear program, and its threats to regional security will pose some of the toughest challenges for the incoming Biden administration. Today, we speak with Ambassador Ross about how Biden can maximize U.S. leverage in order to compel the Iranian regime to change its destabilizing behavior. Ambassador Dennis Ross is the counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He has served as a lead negotiator and diplomat in Democratic and Republican administrations, most recently as a special assistant to President Obama. He has also worked closely with Secretaries of State Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, Warren Christopher, and James Baker. His paper, The Coming Iran Nuclear Talks, Openings and Obstacles, is available now on WashingtonInstitute.org. I'm Erica Nagley, press officer at the Washington Institute. This is episode 75 of the Middle East Policy Cast. This conversation took place on January 5th, 2021. Well, first off, I would just like to extend my congratulations to you, Dennis, on the publication of your transition paper, The Coming Iran Nuclear Talks, Openings and Obstacles. I would like to... First, dive into why you actually wrote this paper and about this topic in the first place, and and specifically why you think Iran and its nuclear program will, in your words, require a response from the Biden administration. Well, thank you. I think one always is tempted to write a transition paper when you have an administration, a new one coming in. I think in this particular case, it's important to emphasize that Iran is going to put itself on the agenda, even if that's not what the Biden administration, given its brothers, might want. What I mean by that is the priorities for the Biden administration are obviously going to be largely domestic. But even in the foreign policy area, uh, the focus will be much more on reestablishing the United States as a good global citizen. Uh, It'll be on focusing on how we deal with the competition that comes from China, which is a a global rival right now, uh, a, an issue, by the way, where there's a consensus. We may not have a lot of consensus on foreign policy issues, but we clearly have one uh, domestically on the issue of China. But Iran is going to force itself on the agenda because now it's announcing, and in fact is doing, that it's enriching to 20%. Uh, enriching to 20%, uh, uh, when you enrich uranium to 20%, you really are going to a dividing point. Everything below 20% is considered low enriched uranium. Everything above 20% is considered highly enriched uranium. A highly enriched uranium puts you in a position where you may not be uh, about to be able to produce weapons grade fissile material, but the steps you have to take to get there are actually quite small. It doesn't take much time. So when Iran uh, is suddenly enriching to 20%, already it's it's beginning to impose a challenge that hasn't been there before, at least not recently. And I think it's important to remember that back in 2012, the Prime Minister of Israel, in speaking to the United Nations General Assembly, actually had a diagram that showed if Iran got one bomb's worth of 20% enriched uranium, that was a red line for Israel, signaling that if the Iranians produced uh, a bomb's worth of that material, Israel would act militarily against it. So here's the Biden administration. Iran is saying explicitly, and actually the IAE has now said it's correct, that they are enriching to 20%. This uh, represents 
the most serious breach of all the all the areas where the Iranians are not now in compliance with the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Uh, and you know that it is in many ways seen as a real threat, even an existential threat from an Israeli standpoint, which could then trigger what could be Israeli preemptive military action against it. The Biden administration is not going to want that. And one has to ask, why is Iran doing it now? I would say to guarantee that the Biden administration actually has to deal with it and deal with it on short order early in the administration. Do you think it'll force the Biden administration's hand in any way to to compromise in a way that they weren't preparing to had Iran not decided to enrich uranium past 20 percent? Again, an interesting question. I don't know that it's going to force its hand to compromise, although clearly that's what the Iranians hope. The Iranians are basically trying to say you have to deal with us. It's not just the 20 percent enrichment. Is that yesterday they also seized uh, a South Korean tanker in the Strait of Hormuz, or just by the Strait of Hormuz. So here, the Iranians are reminding the incoming administration, we're a problem and you can't ignore us. So it leaves the administration, I think, to have to focus on what it's going to do about Iran very early on. I think the key here is to understand that if the administration wants to have a, a policy towards Iran, they can also gain not just international support, but domestic support. It will need to engage in, I think, a series of consultations before it rushes into uh, pursuing uh, discussions with the Iranians. But it's clear, at least to me, that what Iran has in mind is that it wants sanctions relief. And it's telling the, the Biden administration, you're going to have to act quickly on this. Can you talk a little bit more about about these consultations? In your paper, you mentioned that they should be sort of the necessary first step to any movement on Iran policy. So can you talk about who these consultations should be with, what we should be paying attention to, and how they might have differed from the Obama administration and, and the Trump administration? Yeah, so let me, let me approach this in, in different parts. Part one... Uh, is that the, the Biden administration has, and the president-elect uh, announced that he was uh, he is determined to prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons, but he's also ready to provide the Iranians a credible path back into uh, negotiations and diplomacy. And what he meant by that was that uh, the U.S. in his administration would be prepared to have compliance for compliance, meaning if Iran gets back into compliance with the JCPOA, then we will rejoin the, the JCPOA. Now, the, the problem with that is it sounds straightforward, but the Iranians are saying, no, you have to move first. You have to give us sanctions relief in advance. Uh, and the Biden administration will have to decide how it proceeds. But here's where it begins to face, I think, a number of conflicting pressures. One pressure, as I was intimating before, is that if you want to have a bipartisan foreign policy, Iran is an issue that creates some challenges because the Republicans were almost uniformly against the JCPOA. So simply going back into the JCPOA based even on compliance for compliance may require quite a bit of persuasion by Biden, his secretary of state, his national security advisor and the like with Republicans on the Hill. Uh, it's possible that they could persuade them. 
but they will have to persuade them that once you go back into the JCPOA, we're still going to be able to preserve our leverage so that the Iranians have a reason to continue to negotiate. Because what Biden is also saying is that once we're back in the JCPOA, that would be a starting point for follow on negotiations to strengthen the JCPOA. Uh, to deal with other issues like uh, Iranian behavior in the region or its ballistic missiles. So at a minimum, there needs to be consultations with the Republicans to explain what we're doing uh, and why we think it will preserve our leverage. There needs to be consultations with the Europeans uh, who will favor the idea of getting back into the JCPOA and will probably be quite keen on the idea of early sanctions relief. Uh, but as I said, then you have to square that with the Republicans. And you also have to have consultations with the Israelis, with the Emiratis, with the Saudis. The fact that they really weren't in the picture during the Obama administration led them to adopt uh, a posture that was, uh, frankly, one that pretty much made it difficult to achieve what the Obama administration was seeking. The Israeli opposition played itself out on the hill uh, where you saw real divisions by the way, not only among the Republicans, but even some Democrats as well. Uh, it also led the, led the Emiratis and the Saudis to decide that they would have to impose their own limits on Iran's destabilizing behavior in the region. And that's what helped to trigger their intervention in Yemen, uh, which obviously has uh, produced a series of, of pretty horrific uh, humanitarian consequences. So there is going to be a need to have these kinds of consultations uh, even if the administration is going to pursue the a, an attempt to rejoin the JCPOA, I understand that interest in rejoining the JCPOA, but I also think it creates some problems. And I also think compliance for compliance isn't something that can be achieved immediately. Uh, and I say that because Iran will probably uh, take, I think, several months to get back into compliance. They have produced between 10 and 12 times the amount of low-enriched uranium. They have a stockpile of uh, low-enriched uranium that is 10 to 12 times the amount that they're permitted to have under the JCPOA. This is not a light switch where you can flip it and suddenly they have reduced that stockpile. They have to ship it out of the country or they have to dilute it or they have to blend it. That takes time. You go down the line of all the areas where they're no longer in compliance, where they're actually violating the JCPOA limits, and it will take them several months to get back into compliance. So if the, the ground rule of they have to be in compliance first before we can before we're going to lift sanctions, that's going to take a negotiation. It's going to take some time. And that's why even with the consultations, uh, you're looking at what I think is going to be not such an easy thing to achieve anytime soon. At this point, what value would rejoining the JCPOA right now as it stands actually serve the, the Biden administration, knowing that many of the sunset provisions have either expired, you know, in the case of the conventional weapons embargo, but also in terms of the sunset provisions on nuclear energy? I think the main advantage from the Biden administration standpoint is that it buys time again. Uh, it buys time in the sense that, okay, the, the Iranian ability to break out to weapons-grade fissile material uh, will be stretched back out to about a year's time, as opposed to what it may be now. There are different estimates, but some estimates now put it less than three months. So uh, this immediately sort of buys time in that sense. It would obviously stop the enrichment to 20%, which, as I said, with the Israelis could be a potential trigger for military acts. And so you can see a new administration seeing the value of buying time and reducing the immediate uh, threats that might otherwise have to be addressed. 
there is an argument for it. But the downside of it is, A, it may not be so immediate. B, if you lose the ability to bring the Republicans on board, this may not be such an easy uh, agreement to sustain. And by the way, the Iranians have also learned a lesson from the past. And the lesson they've learned from the past is, uh, if you don't really see congressional buy-in to an agreement, the potential for reversal of that agreement, which obviously means they've made some concessions on as well, that potential for reversal is there if there's a change in administration come 2024. So there's a value for an administration that wants to have a bipartisan policy, that wants to show that what it's doing is sustainable. Uh, and And I would say even here, uh, if you don't, even in parallel, deal with the region and Iran's destabilizing efforts in the region, then there again is a need to try to impose sanctions on that behavior, and that threatens again the stability of the JCPOA. So there's a lot of balls here that have to be juggled at the same time. And the question is, if you are able to get back quickly into the JCPOA, if you haven't persuaded the Republicans and the regional actors how you're preserving your leverage so that they don't have to be concerned that once we're back in the JCPOA and we've lifted all the nuclear-related sanctions, that we will have removed the Iranian incentive to negotiate further on these other issues. And so do you see a path forward that Biden should take that would both sort of satisfy the concerns of of regional allies and, and Republicans on the Hill, but also would give Iran a credible path to diplomacy? I do see an alternative, uh, and I think it has an advantage over getting back quickly into the JCPOA, although my my premise is that it's not so easy to get back quickly into the JCPOA. And if it isn't so easy to get back quickly into the JCPOA, maybe it's, there's a value in thinking of what I call a less-for-less less agreement, meaning you don't require the Iranians to get back to exactly where they were in terms of all the JCPOA obligations, but you can reduce the threat they pose by having them scale back the amount of low enriched uranium that they've accumulated. They're now, the IAEA put out a couple of weeks ago that they had 2,400 kilograms of low enriched uranium. The latest statistics I've seen is that it may be up to 2,600 kilograms of low enriched uranium. That is 10 to 12 times the amount that they're permitted under the terms of the JCPOA. What if they just had to cut it back to 1,000? That, again, stretches out the breakout time, reduces some of the risk. Uh, it would obviously mean no longer enriching to, to 20%. Uh, and it would mean dismantling two cascades of advanced centrifuges that, that they've installed, which they weren't supposed to be able to install before 2025. Those advanced centrifuges are up to six times as efficient uh, as the ones that the Iranians have used to develop their program up until now. So if you've got that kind of a scale back, that reduces the threat. It buys time. What you give the Iranians in return is not the lifting of our sanctions regime, but you would give them some limited sanctions relief. For example, they have uh, frozen accounts and they have uh, frozen accounts in overseas banks. Uh, that actually totaled close to $100 billion. I'm not saying you give them all that, but I'm saying you could allow them access to some of those accounts. Or you could, again, provide waivers for uh, countries that were buying oil from Iran. Uh, either one of these could be what you offer them in return. Now, they may not be fully satisfied with that, but they, 
have a real need to get sanctions relief. Uh, this is something that could be achieved much more quickly. And it has the benefit for both the Republicans and people on the Hill, but also the actors in the region, because it shows we're preserving our leverage. We're not dismantling the sanctions regime. We're not uh, going back to a situation where uh, there are no more U.S. Uh, nuclear-related sanctions. We are preserving that, even as we're providing uh, limited sanctions relief. That will give the Iranians an incentive to continue to, to negotiate. But it also reassures those who have real questions about the JCPOA and what symbolically that may reflect in terms of how they see a Biden administration acting. It may reassure them that, okay, they're not going to turn a blind eye to the other issues and they're preserving uh, they're preserving their leverage. So that's why I see the less for less arrangement as being potentially an advantage for the Biden administration in terms of bipartisan foreign policy, in terms of greater sustainability, and in terms of maintaining its own ability uh, to preserve leverage against the Iranians for the follow-on negotiations. And this less for less deal would be part and parcel of an approach that says, okay, we've got this, now now we've bought time to engage in these follow-on negotiations. Right. And it also, you know, plays a role in in managing expectations for consultation partners um, in the region, in Europe and and on the Hill as well. So after the less for less agreement, what happens? Do, you know, multiple tracks take place? Is it kind of the launching into into a grander sort of agreement with Iran? What happens? Well, I think we're looking at what amounts to a a less for less agreement and maybe parallel to that a limited arms control agreement to deal with one of the real, again, more immediate threats I see in the region. One of the virtues of arms control was not that it resolved conflicts, but that it limited their potential for escalation and they and it basically offered you a way to manage those conflicts. There is a real danger that as Iran continues to pursue its precision-guided project in Syria and Lebanon. What I mean by that is Iran has been trying to develop the capabilities to put precision guidance or terminal guidance on the rockets it provided to Hezbollah and rockets it's providing into Syria. Uh, For Israel, that's almost an existential threat. It's certainly a strategic threat. Uh, Israel is not going to live with a situation where Hezbollah, which has tens of thousands of rockets that right now don't have terminal guidance, Uh, It can't live with a situation where suddenly they become very accurate. They have rockets that can cover all of Israel. They have rockets uh, that have heavy payloads. And if those can actually, given their numbers, saturate and overwhelm Israel's uh, missile defense network, uh, that is a real fundamental threat that the Israelis have made it clear they're not going to live with. Israel has carried out, probably uh, has probably hit over 1,200 targets within Syria to try to blunt that threat. But the Iranians are persisting with it. And the one thing that's happened up to now is that the Israelis have been hitting those targets in Syria, but not in Lebanon, because uh, the uh, leader of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, has made it very clear that uh, they they may not retaliate when Israel hits targets in Syria, but they will retaliate when they hit targets within Lebanon. Uh, and because they have uh, probably 130,000 rockets, tens of thousands of which uh, are longer range and heavier payload, uh, that's not a conflict that the Israelis are anxious to get into. Uh, and yet, if they see that within Lebanon, uh, 
that precision guided project is proceeding, they're going to act anyway. Now that if that triggers a war, it will be a very costly war uh, in Lebanon for Hezbollah, but it'll also be a costly war for Israel. But Iran won't be escaped from it because Israel isn't going to accept a situation where it's being hit with up to nearly 2,000 rockets a day, uh, which will largely force most of Israel uh, into bomb shelters. Uh, it's not going to accept a situation like that. And the Iranians who were resp- behind all this are somehow immune from anything. So Israel, under those circumstances, will hit high-value targets in Iran. So here you have a war that, A, you can see how it starts. It's not so easy to see how it ends. But B, it escalates not only vertically, but horizontally. And there can be, here we can engage in what I would say is something that reflects the interest of Hezbollah, Israel, and Iran. They don't want a war. So you could focus on limiting what are the, limiting specifically uh, what Iran can do in terms of transferring of weapons, transferring of of developing local plants to fabricate these capabilities in Lebanon and in Syria. And I could envision the Russians and the Chinese being open to being a part of this and putting pressure on the Iranians because the Russians don't want to get caught in the middle of that war and the Chinese are not interested in a war that disrupts the whole region. So this I would see as a way to introduce arms control into the region parallel to a less for less uh, understanding. And you create a kind of platform there where discussions can take place in parallel, both on the nuclear issue, I would say you bring in the the ballistic missile issue, but also on the other regional uh, questions related to Iran's behavior in the region. So Iran's behavior with arms transfers to Syria and Lebanon, Iran has seen a price for them with these these Israeli strikes, but it hasn't exactly backed down unless it, you know, has reduced its funding for for these ballistic missiles. What makes you think that they'll be willing to negotiate on this matter, especially considering the close Israeli interest and in, in likely at least tacit involvement in the negotiations? Well, I would say there's a difference here between suffering some losses uh, in Syria and even in Lebanon that it can in a sense hide versus getting involved in a war where the Israelis take out very high value, critical economic infrastructure within Iran, because Israel is not going to tolerate, as I said, being in a situation where uh, it's fighting a grinding war on the ground, which will be very costly in Lebanon. Uh, you know, vast majority of Israeli citizens are sitting, having to sit in bomb shelters, and the Iranians stand far away, untouched. Israel won't allow that to be the case. If Iran understands that, in the event that a war breaks out, uh, not something that is uh, easy to to isolate, not something that's easy to contain, and involves it, that's very different than losing material in Syria, even losing some. Uh, could force uh, soldiers to attacks in Syria, which, again, the Iranians usually don't acknowledge. On occasion, they do. It's very different than suddenly having to deal with what could be the loss of, of capabilities, economic capabilities, infrastructure that's quite important to the Iranians. So I, that's why I say there's a convergence of interests in only one respect between Israel, Hezbollah, and Iran. None of them want 
a war uh, that suddenly can escalate. It's just it's in none of their interests. And Hezbollah right now, particularly given what's happening in Lebanon, unless it were to feel somehow its very existence in Lebanon was at risk, doesn't really have an interest in looking like it's responsible for creating what will be much more devastation in Lebanon. And there's a real risk that Israel will go in the ground in a big way. It will go after not only Hezbollah weapons depots, uh, its forces, uh, and even its leadership. Uh, so the cost to Hezbollah could be very high uh, in a way and at a time when there is increasing antipathy towards Hezbollah within Lebanon. So the risks for it are high. But as I said, the costs for Israel are also high that even Iran faces costs that it's not going to want to incur. And that's why I say that they have nothing in common. These are bitter enemies and rivals, but they might share a desire in avoiding a war. Uh, and it wouldn't require... You know, you're not going to see uh, any such discussion along lines of, of arms control that I'm describing as saying, OK, Iran, you have to get out of Syria. They're not going to get out of Syria. They're not going to get out of Lebanon. But it's different if you're saying, OK, but you can't be providing these kinds of capabilities and we have to see you're not. That would be part of understanding. And uh, and then in the event of that, then we we can produce something that becomes more stable and less risky for everybody. But what would prompt Iran to negotiate about ballistic missiles? Would it take a sort of military action or would it just take sort of an invitation through the mail? Well, I think, again, we're looking at sequence. If we're talking about uh, them curtailing ballistic missiles right now, I don't see it. From their standpoint, they see it as a as a point of leverage in the region uh, and they're not going to surrender it. None None of what I'm talking about is going to be easy. The question is, where are there possible openings? I think the key right now, as I said, Iran needs sanctions relief. This is not something simply that they want. It's something they understand that they need. You would not have had the Supreme Leader, in effect, say uh, that he, he is okay with efforts to uh, relieve the U.S. sanctions. That was a message to, uh, to President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif, even now before the June presidential elections, if you can produce that, go ahead. And he even said at the same time, he doesn't want, he wants there to be an understanding uh, among the different Iranian leadership elements, uh, not to continue to harp on this. So there is a need for sanctions relief. That's why they're prepared to negotiate. Now, the scope of that negotiation, I think they would like to limit. They would like the negotiation to be purely about getting back into the JCPOA. But even then, their argument, and they're quite open about this, is A, they're owed compensation for the cost of the Trump-imposed sanctions, uh, and B, uh, it's up to the U.S. to go first, meaning they have to get sanctions relief before uh, they will go back into compliance. But because going back into compliance will take time, uh, and because you're putting the, the Biden administration in a position where they could be giving sanctions relief when the Iranians are violating the JCPOA, that's not really, I think that's not going to be so simple or tenable for the Biden administration. So what I'm trying to weave together here is a picture. It's a picture in which the Iranians have their own need to get sanctions relief. That creates a reason to get into negotiations. But if you're getting back into the JCPOA, it may be difficult to sustain Republican buy-in, 
or regional buy-in. Uh, and at a minimum, it will, it will require extensive consultations with them, even if we are going back into the JCPOA. And as I'm suggesting, there may be an alternative that makes it easier to move more quickly and also makes it more likely to, to gain Republican Party bipartisan support for the approach and makes it easier to manage concerns of countries in the region that could affect the strategy that the Biden administration adopts towards Iran. Right. I think it's it's worth bringing up Iran's wanting of um, sanctions relief, just knowing the way that it handled both its uh, reentry into the financial system last time, but also how it handled the cash benefits it received from unfrozen accounts. It, it didn't attempt to get off the fat of blacklist. It allowed corruption to siphon off many of the economic benefits that sanctions relief provided. To what extent do you think the Iranians would be willing to negotiate for something that, you know, may go away after four years or may have minimal concessions from the U.S. in exchange for a longer lasting deal? Well, I think it's very unlikely that they're going to go along with a longer lasting deal unless they're getting something more. I mean, this is the argument of more for more. Uh, their focus right now, I think, is on the near term, get immediate sanctions relief. I think when we you bring in this question of them being willing to go along with a negotiation for a follow-on agreement, uh, which could address ballistic missiles or in parallel might address what's happening in the region, I think their interest in that is quite low. Their interest is quite high in getting sanctions relief. Yeah. My argument here is the less-for-less less approach and the limited agreement on arms control approach basically allows you to give them some sanctions relief while preserving your leverage. If you're going to go for something that's a follow-on that is really more for more, it's not going to be so easy to produce everything they want, and they're going to require much more from us. One of the one of the things that they would want to see is that all American sanctions get lifted. The problem there is we have legislatively mandated sanctions related to terrorism and human rights, which it would be very difficult get, to get the Congress to reverse. Uh, so the question here uh, is... What can we do to provide more for them in response to them being required to do more? Uh, and I think there is, there are some options we have available, but the Iranian expectations are also going to have to be adjusted. Uh, you put your finger on it. You know, they, their banks don't have the kind of transparency that is necessary as it relates to money laundering. Other uh, banks are are antiquated when it comes to broader regulations on uh, capital, how banks are capitalized. So I think the, the key here is going to be to uh, to be able to identify areas where we could provide them more, assuming they're prepared to go along with doing much more. Uh, we could provide them uh, at least access to dollar clearing operations because the dollar is so central to as a currency to international trade. We could create a special purpose vehicle with the Europeans where we would all grant licenses for certain kinds of products. Uh, we could uh, help uh, with their light industry and to give them access to consumer goods here. So there are things we could do. Whether they'll amount to being enough, hard to say. Uh, much depends upon, again, how the Iranians also read our resolve. It cannot be more for more is never going to work if 
it's us just focusing on how we can give them more, even as we're asking for more, they're going to have to see that we will compete with them. They will have to see that we're prepared to raise the pressure on them, not just let them off the hook. Uh, and that means we, you know, we still talk about human rights. It means that we, we do a lot with regional countries to improve and integrate their missile defenses. We do more to support their ability to counter Iranian cruise missiles and drones. Uh, we focus on doing contingency planning uh, to counter what they do with Shia militias, with the local partners in the region at a time when they're doing more and we do more to push normalization. All these would be signs that we're keeping the pressure on even as we're giving the Iranians a way out. I think the mistake of the Trump administration was to focus only on maximum economic pressure, but at the same time to isolate us, not the Iranians, to walk away from the kind of common front that produced political isolation of the Iranians, which is a form of pressure on them, but also not to think about giving them a way out. You know, you can build pressure on the Iranians, you can compete with the Iranians, you can show them there's a cost if they continue certain kinds of behaviors, but you also have to give them a pathway out that shows what they can gain if they're prepared to change their behaviors. That was Ambassador Dennis Ross speaking with me, Erica Nagley. You can read his latest work on our website, WashingtonInstitute.org. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode from the Middle East Policy Cast. If you have any questions about the show, email us at press at WashingtonInstitute.org. See you next time. Production assistance this week from Scott Rogers. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Wash Institute. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>